0: It's the occult mystery podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind. to the occult disney podcast where we open up the hood of the mickey mouse's mirth mobile and see what's under what secrets lie inside sorry i I just winged that intro i don't know i was was experimenting i was trying something new this is matt here (laughs) with me today's thomas corinth the paranoid american howdy
1: hey that's me was yeah i like that intro though we could work on some cool ones like (laughs) tonight we're gonna sacrifice the sacred mouse under the the full moon or something
0: oh yeah rock on okay i can do that (laughs) but um yeah today i we're we're definitely from the occult perspective we got a lot to chew on it's a sleeping beauty which lots you know last one was like lady and the tramp we had a little bit of trouble uh putting the lens on that one because well it's it's basically a talking animal movie so <laughs> it's gonna
1: ironically it's gonna come in helpful today though because there's going to be a couple nods back to lady in the tram specifically which oh yeah worth it
0: yeah because the production of these movies were like all intertwined um right. it seems sleeping beauty it's either sleeping beauty or black cauldron that hold the record for longest disney production um i, th- I think they're about the same uh, in the end. So, because uh, Sleeping Beauty got, I mean, production was rolling in like 52, 53, somewhere along there. Yeah, uh, the, the
1: script production started in 51. So it was a, a long process
0: for yeah, sure. Yeah, we can kind of from there. And then there's like a series of directors, which I found weird because uh, the first guy had a heart attack. And then they'd bring in a director and he'd do like a few sequences. Uh, like one of the nine old men did the. Um, just the forest sequences he was a director of that and then production just kind of slowed down for a few years and when they got going again he w- he wasn't directing anymore so we basically have like five directors on this movie which is kind of weird i i guess i don't understand enough about how an- how animation works but uh
1: <laughs> i mean maybe you just grinded them all the way down to the bone
0: yeah and this seems to be one where walt disney himself was equally interested and uninterested in this movie like it seems he really knew he had to put it like a core curve in animation, you know, a spectacle, but at the same time, you know, Disneyland and and the TV show seem to have been like his main focuses at the same time where you get the weird synergy of, um, you know, sleeping beauty's castle showing up at Disneyland three and a half years before the movie was even released.
1: (laughs) It's also just overwhelming to think about all the projects that Walt had going on as this one guy. And, you know, of course he had, the beginnings of this global conglomerate starting to form around him, but he still was like a mortal person here on the planet earth that was overseeing, you know, like I, we could say arguably the best Walt Disney animation that they ever kind of produced was sort of uh, sleeping beauty. There's a strong argument that I, that I can make here, but he's also got all these theme parks going on and all of the other, you know, business related stuff that's going on that he has his hands in because he's a control freak so i mean sometimes i get overwhelmed when you know i've got like an appointment and like one other thing to do in addition to my normal job but this guy uh you know he was just non-stop working on crazy things
0: no i mean if if i had been in that time and place my my focus would have been on disneyland i mean i obsess over the theme parks now so (laughs) it makes sense um but yeah, I, I guess we'll just start a little bit with animation style. This is the second um, kind of widescreen Disney movie. With where I, When we were doing Lady and Tramp, I think we were like, it's nice, but it didn't really need to be. Where Sleeping Beauty definitely needs to be. Um, I feel like, yeah, the overall package is probably Disney's best. But we are missing the uh, almost inhumanly possible to do in the first place details that you see in, say, Fantasia or Snow White. So there's a little bit of artistry lacking, I guess, in that just kind of for beginners luck, I guess.
1: (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I I think we can debate on this one a little bit because I find Sleeping Beauty to be intensely detailed, maybe even beyond some of the aspects of Snow White. I think Snow White had very detailed matte paintings and background paintings, um, although the animations itself, specifically the rotoscoping and the characters, they were a little bit flat for their time. It was groundbreaking, you know, but if you compare them frame by frame, um, maybe some of the background paintings um, are, you know, detailed in different ways. But the animation itself and the rotoscoping and the capturing of all the the different sort of flow and, and perspectives, I think it's far superior in Sleeping Beauty. Like it's not yeah. even a close comparison.
0: That's what I'm saying. As a package, I think Sleeping Beauty probably is the, the height of Disney animation. But just if you want to take specific animation, I, I always think of the water in Fantasia as being like basically number one because that's just insane. Um, although I was, sometimes there's animation we don't even know about. I just read a production book, uh, Space Odyssey, about the making in 2001, not realizing that they had a bunch of basically interns like having to animate the stars in that movie so they spent months just like making little splotches you know like they probably didn't
1: even get their name anywhere near the credits either
0: yeah that's that's right i mean even (laughs) come on that movie even the people who really did the effects uh ended up with the final credit of you know special effects directed and and conceived by stanley kubrick you know so (laughs) that that was a little bit of a raw one he pulled there i guess but
1: And this one's a little bit interesting too, talking about the animation style and just the aesthetics in general is that there was, I think it was like a behind the scenes or like one of those DVD commentaries, but I was watching it and they mentioned that Walt was very disappointed in a few of his previous uh, productions, specifically Alice in Wonderland, I think, um, that the original concept art that was done by Mary Blair was so very like striking and it had such a distinct style to it but by the time it got all the way through the art directors and all the way through the animators and then you know ended up on the the final film reel it didn't really capture that same sort of like artistic flair that I guess Mary Blair had originally captured and that happened I think two or three times and Walt didn't want that to happen on this particular film and so he gave almost exclusive creative control over to a Evan Earl, I believe. And once this guy takes over, anytime there was like a dispute on like, hey, I don't think it should look like this. Walt would just immediately side with this one guy every time um, because he was so myopic and so laser focused on making sure that that original concept art made its way all the way through to the final product. And it didn't kind of get lost in all the adaptation of the process. And he actually did a really good job of it. And there was uh, this whole interview about where they found these things called the um, the hunt of the unicorn or the unicorn tapestries, which were these old tapestries from the actual 1500s, I believe. and they essentially remade that same aesthetic but animated it and turned it into cartoons. And if you look at some of the frames in Sleeping Beauty side by side by some of those unicorn tapestries, um, like you can it's undeniable in the uh, the likenesses that they were able to capture and then kind of bring it to life. So, so it's just noteworthy in that this is one of the very rare and probably the the only last you know time that Walt gave this full creative control over to someone and sided with them on almost every dispute that had kind of come up. So that one was was interesting to me. And it's also explains why this one does have a decent, consistent style, despite going through five different directors.
0: Yeah, um, although apparently it, it really did piss off the animators because they. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 what we see on screen, of course, is great. So I guess in this case, Walt was right, uh, or, or Earl was right. But mm-hmm. yeah, they, they basically felt like kind of robbed of their own creativity making it. Um, well, we have the. Uh, Giron, I can't say this guy's name, Giron Omini. Anyway, the, the the quote is that Earl's paintings lack the mood in a lot of things, all that beautiful detail in the trees, the bark, and all that that's all well and good but who the hell is going to look at that the backgrounds became more important than the animation he'd made them more like christmas <laughs> cards so <laughs> christmas well, and, cards can be nice <laughs> well,
1: And christmas cards were actually some of the uh, original inspirations for that concept work that i've mentioned that um mary blair had worked on like walt loved that style and and this one in particular sleeping beauty they did capture that and like you said I think the the proof is in the pudding a little bit. So the animators I believe won a couple small little um scuffles. Like there was originally the three fates, um like the three fairies were all gonna look almost identical and just kind of have different like colored dresses. And the animators were able to push back on that a little bit and then uh they added a little bit more characters. Uh there was like the the drinking bard uh at one of the scenes when the two kings are discussing the the wife or you know the the princess and the prince and how they're gonna get together and as they're doing this the bard like keeps drinking more and more wine and gets really drunk. That one was like in particular something that the the animators were able to just do because they kind of owned that particular character. And that was the sort of silly cartooniness that they were trying to inject this entire time, which was sort of juxtaposing and clashing with Earl's, you know, sort of more serious vision, but I think I think that they were paired up so perfectly. Like cause you've got a little bit of that goofy cartooniness, but then you also have like a very serious medieval looking aesthetic that kind of gets carried through the entire movie.
0: Yeah. Um Earl left Disney short shortly before they finished this. So he wasn't there for like the final. So the I guess the animators got in a bit of the last laugh as it said, um they had Earl's background paintings like softened and diluted a little bit from the what it says is distinct medieval texture. Uh, which I'm not I guess that's more like the tapestry look so um, I, I don't know I guess that's a good compromise though because again n- nothing's wrong with looking at this movie so <laughs> and there
1: day. there's a couple other cool notes too The a guy Mark Davis did some of the character design and he created the characters I mean no one person designs the characters but he's credited with doing a lot of the initial concept development and just developing the silhouettes and the process you go through on making like balanced characters. And he made it with um, the princess and with Maleficent, you know, Aurora and Maleficent and was able to capture that like interesting dynamic between the two. And then he went on and made um, the 101 Dalmatians and he did Cruella DeVille. So he, and it's, that was kind of noteworthy to me because the same guy that designed both those characters and both of those characters are the main ones that are kind of getting this like, revamp where they were the good guys all along you know like the modern movies and that's ben maleficent and carilla deville
0: um i guess it's partly because this movie had such a long production that this sort of thing's bound to happen but the people that worked on it are kind of interesting too apparently um while warner had shut down their animation for a few years chuck jones actually did work on this movie which is pretty wild to think about and um since, uh, Don Bluth was a a basically an, a, an intern maybe animating stars for this movie, so nothing particularly creative, <laughs> but he was there. So it's, it's just interesting to have all those people working on the same movie.
1: <laughs> Honestly, I I don't know if, if he had anything to do with the scene. Um, I think it was Mark Davis that also worked on that final scene between the, the prince and Maleficent as the dragon, but I swear that dragon had some Don Bluth DNA uh, somewhere in it.
0: Maybe he was uh, shouting from the back of the room or something. They, they just you know got stuck in their subconscious or whatever. Um,
1: and another cool uh, note about that—that that really insane sort of fight sequence that that comes at the end of the movie—is that it was essentially designed by uh, Mark Davis, and he was a fighter pilot in World War II, and he likened like the action sequences to sort of him being in like a dogfight where things just like happen so fast that you can't even think about it. Uh, where like the prince is, you know, getting attacked and it looks like he's about to die and it happens so quickly. But the way that you described that was based on his experience as a fighter pilot in the world war.
0: Did you um ever make it to Tokyo Disney? No, I did not. Okay. They they have in the in their castle, they have an actual attraction which was um facing the dragon and, and they get a kid from the audience to, you know, like it might have been somewhere, I think it was based on Sleeping Beauty, but where they have to battle the dragon. It was truly like the most traumatizing Disney attraction ever because <laughs> it was like you're in this dank basement. There's like loud, sharp noises coming around. There's a scary dragon <laughs> animatronic and your kids were screaming. Even as an adult doing it, I was like, yeah, this is pretty creepy. Uh <laughs> So. Well, the the,
1: uh, the Florida version had um, an the Alien Encounter, I believe, which was an amazing ride, but that was also deemed just beyond scary, way more scary than the demographic was for the park. But man, <laughs> I, I don't know if have you ever heard of it or or seen any videos on it, the Alien heard- Encounter.
0: I, I yeah I've heard of it. I think by the time I got to it, it's when they had like rethemed as a Stitch to so yeah, kids wouldn't yeah, yeah. poop themselves in the theater.
1: <laughs> it, it was very similar, but it had like these little speakers, and it would it would seem like they were right behind you, and you could feel it like breathing down your neck. And it had a lot of like jump scare and um, like flashing light kind of moments that people complained about. So yeah, Lilo and Stitch, it was. But it was a, an amazing experience that didn't feel at all uh, that something you'd find at Disney World.
0: The one that got me the most, I think it was Honey, I shrunk the audience, is uh, where they, you know, the seat kind of pokes you in the back. It's like supposed to be a bee sting or something. And then, like, every other time I, I went to that attraction, I'd just be like sitting up because I did not like getting punched <laughs> in the, randomly punched in the back. So <laughs> the, I was at the edge of my seat because I didn't want to get punched in the back. So. <laughs> Um, we should really, I guess, start looking a little more closely at this one. Uh, I mean, the movie is just as far as content and everything, because there's a lot to talk about. Um, the one thing, I guess, in, in production is there is an obvious similarity to Snow White. We have a sleeping princess, uh, or I guess Snow White's like Germany. It's, we're back in France, like Cinderella. Uh, one of the criticisms was that Disney was kind of treading on ground they'd already done which I think is still a little bit leveled at this film, because um while it is the, technically the brilliant <laughs> film, it's it's sometimes not seen as the best one story-wise, I guess. But there's well, a well,
1: lot. Well, if, if only those critics knew how the next 50 and 60 years would continue to develop and just reuse that same trope over and over, just in, in different scenarios, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, because they got to put Aurora in a pink dress, which she doesn't. And they, you know, they fight over the dress color as the animators mm-hmm. did, right? So, in all of the promotional, she's always wearing the pink dress, so you can tell her apart from Cinderella, you know? <laughs> well, the Cinderella's got and- pink dress, so they could switch their colors, too, if they want.
1: And also, I think Walt maybe takes too much heat for this, because it's not like uh, Disney or even the, the Grimm's brothers were the ones that were regurgitating the same story. The story of Sleeping Beauty, I think, might be one of the oldest ones out of all the stories so far that, that Disney has kind of adapted. Grimm, Grimm did have their rendition of Sleeping Beauty, but the very first Sleeping Beauty could be as old as the 1200s, I think. Like, it could be back as the 13th century, and it was part of uh, the Book of 1000 and One Nights, like the same one that you know that, that you're familiar with for a lot of other stories, and it was maybe like two or three paragraphs long. And it was very short and it was the the exact same premise where a girl meets the prince, but then she gets put under a spell by um, a witch. And instead of being pricked by a finger on a spinning wheel, it was like a flax seed. And she ends up getting like a flax seed stuck under one of her fingernails or something like this. And that knocks her out and she falls asleep until the prince goes to kisses her and then notices the flax seed under her nail, removes it from under her nail, and then she wakes up. And this is like a very, very short story, but it dates all the way back to, you know, some people date it to like the ninth century, but it's no um, no um later than the 13th century. So this is essentially the prototypal Sleeping Beauty. And then it gets readapted by the Germans. It gets readapted by the French, by the Italians. And I think the one that Walt essentially based it on was a French version that was based on an Italian version from the 1600s. <laughs> um, so, again, it's not... It's not like Walt, you know, copying himself over, although they decided that this was the thing that they wanted to do. But if also like Snow White was kind of a knockout of the park, Cinderella was sort of a knockout of the park. So why not do another princess story, especially compared to all the other movies they had kind of done that didn't have that same mass appeal, I guess, didn't have that same like knockout effect. So, uh, you know, again, like might makes right. The proof is in the pudding this was sort of the right decision in this case
0: so the original one does have her meeting the prince beforehand
1: there are there are so many really weird variations of this story man like i, I don't even know which ones we want to get into yeah. because some get really wild but well, yeah the, the the very original version is the girl um sorry i don't think she meets the prince first i think that her dad basically consults with like the wise people of you know his castle and they basically say hey your daughter's gonna go great but when she turns of age she's gonna get a flax seed like behind her if she touches a flax seed because he basically wishes out to the gods oh gods if i can have a daughter even and it's such a weird thing like he almost (laughs) plants um like the the detriment to him but he's like oh gods, if I could just have the daughter, even if she's like deathly, you know, allergic to flax seeds, that's fine. Just give me a daughter. So of course he gets a daughter that's deathly allergic to flax seeds. So all the wise people are telling him like, hey man, when the, you know, your daughter uh, becomes 16 or basically the equivalent of puberty, when your daughter hits puberty, she's going to get a flax seed, um, you know, caught somewhere on her and she's going to be poisoned by it. And that's, I mean, it's the exact same story. You just kind of shift, flaxseed and a needle and mm. wise men into a Maleficent
0: and there it is. Uh, no, I was just uh, thinking because I think Disney considered her meeting the prince first as to be their own, their own addition to the story because um, uh, again I was asking which version because the one I was familiar with is she's sleeping for like the kingdom is actually sleeping for a hundred years which wouldn't make sense if she meets the prince beforehand and, and I came in this movie with that in mind which yeah like
1: Well, the original, um, the original adaptation that sprouted after that 13th century version, the one that started coming around in like the 16 or 1700s, this one, it wasn't a prince. It was actually a king that was already married and he would come across Sleeping Beauty um, and he was so attracted to her that he just had his way with her while she was asleep. And there was no kissing and waking up and true love or anything. It was, you know, <laughs> he just had it. He was like, oh, wow. Sleeping girl, super adorable, had his way with her. And then the wife finds out and the wife finds out that she gets pregnant. So she starts plotting against how she's going to, like, take out Sleeping Beauty and take out these kids. So, she ascends, so Sleeping Beauty, in these older versions... Does not waken from the kiss. There's two variations. One variation is that she has these children. Somehow she sleeps all the way through her own, you know, um, she has like twins. She has a boy and a girl, I believe, two twins, and they represent like the sun and the moon because the original sleeping beauty story is kind of based on like these creation myths, and she's sort of Ishtar and Nastarte and, and like the original fertility goddess. And we'll get into some of this stuff. But it but essentially um she kind of represents this thing and her giving birth to these two twins one way that she wakes up is one of the babies is trying to suckle and it gets her finger instead of her nipple and it sucks the flax seed out from behind her fingernail and that's what wakes her up and in another variation it's kind of like that is that as the the two babies try to you know breastfeed on her that wakes her up and her maternal instincts kind of kick in and you know it so in neither of those versions it's ever the kiss and in fact that was one of the not that walt did this i think in one of the later the the version that essentially got adapted by disney that guy softened it by taking out you know the rapey parts and sort of put in like a, a softer version of that
0: yeah, I'm seeing here. Wonder if I've like Mandela affected this whole movie because before I watched it um, last week, in my mind, she didn't meet the prince first. 100 years did occur in the story, and the prince was basically like going off to on his own. Like I have to prove myself or something and and check out this kingdom. So, like. Just... In, in the
1: original stories yeah it's a hundred years although in the in the very OG there's no like she doesn't fall asleep for that long it doesn't even really indicate it just mentions that she goes into this like sleep that she has to be saved from but in, in the modern um, stories and the grim I believe it's a hundred years but in the movie as soon as they start putting everyone to sleep they're like oh wait wake everyone back up so it almost feels like it happens within the span of like a week maybe at least yeah, in yeah. the disney movie
0: that's where i'm that's where i'm saying it's either my fault i fault tie, faulty mel- uh, memory can't talk either or 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 i can blame cern on changing the movie which is of course the option i'd like to choose <laughs> the,
1: um, the, the berenstain bear sort of analogy. yeah yeah
0: yeah i just i had a very firm memory of that story and it's not like i've been out there like reading versions of sleeping beauty so i'm like how i'm sitting here wondering how i got that into my head because you say Joseph Campbell you say hero's journey first image that always comes to my mind is is the prince fighting dragon Maleficent you know
1: <laughs> and, and um, before we move on from some of that aspect too is that in the original stories where it's the wife that wants to get revenge and kill her and you know kill her kids um, there's also a cannibalistic version of this where the way that she wants to kill the kids is by ordering her cook to turn them into a meal um, and that version the cook decides not to and kind of like helps the kids escape but there it gets dark there's there's some very dark sort of themes that uh come up in the earlier versions of this one before it made its way and and actually an example of where grim aren't the ones that made something super dark it, it actually predates them
0: i'm actually seeing here um i, I guess we'll talk about the music a little bit to Sleep being based on Tchaikovsky because last night I was like oh I I have some CDs back there maybe I'll listen to some of the Tchaikovsky version you know when I go to bed it's it's three CDs long so that didn't (laughs) happen it's a really long ballet apparently but um that that did catch me because I I again I I probably probably the last time I saw Sleeping Beauty was uh the first time it was released on DVD so it's it's been a while um and there's a guy that plays in orchestras so i was like oh what? Wait, wait a minute you know when the music starts so it's like hey there's a ripping off tchaikovsky oh no they've based it on tchaikovsky okay that, that's better
1: <laughs> i'm surprised i'm surprised you didn't um recognize that already like from before but i guess if you've only seen it once when it came out on dvd but uh there was a an interview with walt disney himself to, around the production of this or around the release and he mentions that the original sort of dna for this entire movie started with tchaikovsky like it started with him listening to that music and saying when we make this sleeping beauty movie it needs to be an animated version of tchaikovsky so it's it really did start at least according to walt that was the heart of sleeping beauty originally was tchaikovsky and everything else followed that all the aesthetics and all of the um you know the unicorn tapestries and everything else that kind of came secondary to this is an animated version of this tchaikovsky
0: right c- yeah i can go with that I'm, I'm just looking at the cds here to see if that's where i got the um 100 years idea from but uh or, or where i got into my head but i it's actually mostly in yeah yeah no 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 clues to that so <laughs> but um definitely makes it one of their classier scores so you i mean you can't really complain about the songs in this one
1: (laughs) well and you know another reason why you can't complain about the songs is originally there were supposed to be five or six more sort of broadway you know like every other disney movie that had come before this one outside of snow white um and even snow white had a couple but like you know it didn't it i think it had a whole bunch that were originally anime they even had animatics and storyboards but at at one of the last moments walt decided no we want this to be a little bit more serious and i want it to kind of stand as this artistic expression piece more so than like the predictable show thing that comes with the soundtrack and the one song that they ended up keeping was the um i mean i'm already blanking on the name of the song but the the dream a dream or something or it came to me in a dream what is what's the name of it
0: by you saying that i've now lost it hold on i think i still got my uh <laughs> i still got my, my stuff up here uh once upon a dream
1: once a, once upon a dream yeah so yeah. so it was originally once upon a dream and then five and six other kind of like kitschy singy songy broadway um tunes and they got cut because they just weren't serious enough yeah
0: because we see the uh the fairies uh failed cake right the one that's kind of falling off to the side and and that was actually the culmination of like a five minute song dance and giggle sequence uh similar to right
1: and and that original <laughs> sequence was supposed to end with the cake exploding and this whole like this big you know cacophony of things happening and again it seemed to to walt that this wasn't the tone that he was trying to set for this particular scene so the cake almost falling over was almost like the crescendo of goofiness for that particular scene especially compared to what the original animatics had
0: yeah i wonder if that like put audiences off a little bit at the time maybe maybe they were expecting that because sleeping beauty didn't immediately make its um its production costs back because it cost a lot of money. It was somewhat oh, successful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. It was, was not re-released during Walt Disney's lifetime, which I mean, that's only like what, seven years or so whatever, but uh, <laughs> and
1: they also never did. They never really devoted that much resource to a production ever again. So it was sort of de facto the end of that particular era of dumping everything you had into the animation. Almost everything that came after this started to lighten up a little bit and take, some extra shortcuts whereas this one for whatever reason they really decided not to take the the same shortcuts that they had in in other movies
0: well yeah it took them eight years <laughs> yeah, i i guess we'd say seven and a half if we want to be nice but yeah i mean the, the attention and detail is clear but apparently now it is uh with re-releases and video it is now the second most successful movie from 1959 so eventually it made a turnaround so i like it had to like seep into the public unconscious first you know and and yeah i mean it's, it more. it's only
1: second to ben-hur that's the that was the number one movie of the release here so
0: right right so it is kind of weird and it did seem like yeah they Other than the fact that they built the castle, you know, before the movie came out, Disney did seem to mildly ignore this one for quite a while. This was, I believe, the first big DVD release because they were just like, hey, this is great animation. We No one's been thinking about it for the past 40 years.
1: And they also, this movie, they made extremely good use of the wide format because it was 70 millimeter horizontal on the reel. And I think that the original frames that all the animators were working with, they were used to working on typical notepads that you could just kind of like flip through that they had been working with for most of their adult careers. And then this movie comes along and one of the animator interviews referred to it as working on cells the size of a bed sheet and trying to like flip through them. And that Mm. was a little bit of a... A sort of a hyperbole of the animator at the time but we weren't talking about the same traditional and that's why there was so much detail in these two, is that there were these huge wide you know landscape um, panoramic pieces of paper and they would just pack them with details and that was it, sort of a new thing I mean that was breaking a little bit of ground
0: again on television this becomes like a travesty of a uh, pan and scan basically so <laughs> <laughs> which is probably why that another reason that dvd released which did include a pan and scan too but while why, why well, and was...
1: this was um a stereo soundtrack too which i think was the first disney might have been one of the first uh feature length animations that had like a full stereo orchestra track to go along with it apparently
0: which, like, if he... if you saw the 70 millimeter like cinerama or whatever presentation it, it was actually six channels
1: okay that's that's probably what it was and, and not just stereo but it was almost you know uh, yeah. surround sound
0: if you saw the norm you know 35 millimeter normal version yeah it was just stereo but yeah if you went to the super swank roadshow version you would get a, a six channels which i guess fantasia tried that a little bit but on a much more like a high five for the time but low fi for even
1: 1959 so <laughs> <laughs> and not to, to miss that this one has the perfect length in my opinion of about just you know a little bit over 60 minutes run length when you take all the credits out and everything we've talked about this before some movies you know get like two hours long somewhere some of them were like 50 minutes or something like that this one i think the total run length was like a minute and 10 or an hour and 10 minutes but outside those credits it's almost like a very neat just a full hour the pacing's great everything like this um so many of those different aspects the removal of all those the show toony songs um, you know, letting one particular guy, at least until the very end when he leaves, have just like ultimate dictator-esque kind of say. But it all culminated in in a really great movie.
0: Yeah. Um, it's like the the Disney problem now of taking like a, you know, your 60 minute Pinocchio giving deciding to remake it at like two and a half hours and then like taking out anything interesting so <laughs> um of course uh the the live action one of this i guess would be maleficent which i saw shortly after its release and i i remember liking that one i didn't watch it again for this but i do remember actually enjoying that one perfectly fine so how much of that do you remember i'm
1: curious because i haven't i haven't seen that one yet
0: um well we got a lot of Jolie. um it, it is one thing that surprised me is that actually is this story just with the uh, perspective switch, which actually technically should be changed from the good fairies to Maleficent. Right.
1: But, but see Maleficent does some very evil things. And again, I haven't, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to watching Maleficent to see how they justify her position, but she shows up uninvited to a party and <laughs> condemns a girl to death and then disappears. So, like, how do you spin that into being like, oh, she was just misunderstood, you know?
0: I She got shafted by the fairies earlier or something. I don't remember. Of course, it's Angie and Julie. So she takes it
1: out on this poor poor girl entering adulthood. (laughs) She's like, oh, you got your period. Now you're going to die. And that's all because of these fairies, you know, pissed me off a while ago.
0: No, I'm basically just on. Uh, yeah, I, unfortunately, it's been like almost ten years now. So I'm just like, I remember not hating that one. Uh, that that and the Jungle Book are the only ones where I was like, oh, I guess these aren't too bad for the live action ones. Um, <laughs> I, I almost like want to hate. I've heard so many bad things about the Pinocchio one. I'm, I'm I almost feel like I, maybe I do have to watch it. <laughs> well, to I think yeah, of course. A I mean, a train wreck it is. <laughs> have you ever seen the
1: horror the horror movie uh, Pinocchio? I think it was like. 98 or 99 or something it's really bad but it's something you have to watch <laughs>
0: yeah pinocchio is a weird one where every director feels like they have to do it and they probably shouldn't so <laughs> <laughs>
1: um
0: i i'm pretty sure you have a few interesting notes on this one getting into the the, the weirder parts if you want if i want to kick off part of that yeah,
1: yeah i don't even know where to start i've my my notes are so scattered but i'm just gonna kind of <laughs> rapidly go through some and and any that that you take affinity to will just go on a little tangents or something but um one one thing to point out is that she has multiple names in this um so she's aurora she's sleeping beauty she's briar rose and then towards the end of the movie they all just kind of keep calling her rose as they're, like, yeah that, that was her.
0: mildly confusing <laughs> but that is what that is correct that's the name she would respond to at that point in time so
1: it, it is correct. Yeah, it is correct. <laughs> and these are all homages to different variations of, you know, who she was throughout these different stories that all have been adapted from. Um, and the, uh, the Briar Rose essentially means prickly rose. And, you know, she's trying to avoid pricking her finger on something. So there's a lot of kind of like wordplay between the different things that happened to her. And again, those old versions, it was she got a flax seed under her fingernail, and that evolved into she was going to prick her finger on flax. And then that just turned into like prick her finger on a needle because it's a little bit easier to correlate. But it, it really ties all the way back to that Briar Rose name and pricking your finger on this like organic flower um and and some of the other cool aspects of this is that she's got the three fairy godmothers which and i'm saying fairy godmother they don't actually say that at all in the movie but that's kind of like what disney
0: they do razor
1: you know <laughs> they do raise her and um but but they're essentially the three fates of um you know of greek mythology and so many other different cultures have the same kind of concept but one of the the Sort of the cool um, synchronicities that I noticed here is that when they make these decisions, their names sort of betray um, what their background is. So, for example, it's flora, fauna, and Merryweather. And that, as we were talking about before, this is sort of the retelling of the original creation myth, especially with this this uh, female coming into age and then immediately giving birth to the moon and the sun and then having this like evil mother want to eat them, and then they all kind of get resurrected, and she comes back to life. It's sort of this resurrection fertility god story. So you've got flora, fauna, and Merryweather, which is basically the three things that represent nature. You know, you've know, you got plants, animals, and the weather. Um, and another interesting aspect of this is that in The Three Fates, there's the spinner, there's the allotter, and then there's essentially death. And there's, there's a number of scenes in the movie that, again, like a tribute these different sort of principles to the three different fairy godmothers. So one of those examples is that um weather, who's in charge of the weather, she kind of represents the the death aspect and if you notice she's always pushing for magic. She's the one that like wants to go and get the magic wands. She's like um sort of the one that that knows that magic is really what's going to help them all out the most and she can't not use it. And that kind of represents that that uh, magic kind of process of like death and resurrection. And so that was, that's a really interesting aspect because, it, because outside of the fertility goddess, which is like Ishtar and Astarte and Easter, um, the male counterpart to that is almost always a weather god. It's going to be Zeus with his lightning bolt. It's going to be Jupiter. It's going to be um, Hadad. Like these were all rain gods and storm gods. So um, th- there's just so many correlations there.
0: The first draft of this interestingly had eight fairies, Uh, this includes Maleficent as a fairy Um, so they they went from eight which that's an interesting number of course, uh, down to four uh, and their specific ideas apparently were the fairy of dreams the fairy of the forest the fairy of the elements and the fairy of darkness, which I mean that doesn't like Counteract what you're saying. Just trying to add some detail and definition there.
1: Well, and and not just that. That's Walt Disney's version, but in in not the original version. Because again, that original version was very straightforward, and it was just the king kind of consulted with his wise man, and in some it's like wise women, and they just kind of give him this rough idea. Oh, something's going to happen to her. There's not all these fairies and witches and things. But in the later versions, I think from like the the mid 1600s it starts to shift a little bit and at this point there's 12 different fairies <laughs> and um i think maleficent is going to be the 13th fairy but being the number 13 would have been unlucky so they decide not to include her because they don't want to invite this concept of bad luck onto their newborn daughter and then she gets wind of it and the and the 12 fairies in those um older medieval versions that was a reference to the Zodiac. It was essentially, again, this is the creation story being retold. It's death and resurrection and it's the weather, Meriwether, flora fauna. So again, with Meriwether, you've got the 12 months that rotate around. It's the sun, you know, dying and coming back to life. Um, so, so this entire theme just keeps popping up and it remains consistent throughout.
0: For sure. It's that 13th Zodiac sign as well. Isn't there slight, slightly under, I think.
1: <laughs> well well i think in the uh, in that that version that i'm talking about i had the zodiac they all show up to the baby's christening or whatever you know when they're giving them um sleeping beauty and aurora like all these presents and they all have these like golden plates and those golden plates are representing their different signs and in, in addition to the golden plates they kind of bestow upon her these different sort of like magical powers
0: i like how we add that though because the original just seems like a, a plea for antihistamine or something you know <laughs> <laughs> a cautionary allergy tale where you know we throw in some magic some fairies and uh, some darkness so it gets a little a little in- more interesting i guess um <laughs> well, and even in these medieval versions we're still only talking like four
1: paragraphs the entire story you know we're not talking about a book at any point
0: i mean let's be honest if you're if you were writing this one out that's you could whittle this down to a four paragraph thing because it's a very visual movie right i mean what aurora's character gets what like 18 lines in the movie or or she's on screen for 18 minutes something like that and uh, i mean she's not in the movie that much (laughs) yeah in in fact the focus is
1: really on the fairy godmothers for the most part um which they, they have the uh the most developed characters i think in the movie and it's also interesting that this movie they're not really sidekicks. Uh, there, there really are more main characters than they are supporting characters. But in addition to that, this is one of the first times in the Disney movies that we don't have sidekicks uh, and we don't have B plots. It's just the one plot of sleeping beauty, Like there's not these little like side missions going on.
0: Just kind of like a minute. Cause the Prince, unlike the, uh, last two movies with princes, this, this one does get a name. And, um, they, I, I felt like they were playing the his horse as a bit of a sidekick, you know, just just for about a minute.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I can, I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, just that second of levity, I suppose. But um, and, and
1: speaking of that horse, really quick, it it stood out to me because like the owl makes another appearance here, um, which was in Fox and the Hound. Like it starts developing this character that you're gonna see over and over in Disney movies. So it shows up, I think, in Fox of the Hound, fleshed out pretty well. It shows up again here in this movie looking almost identical. And I Sword think the, the next stone. time it shows up, yeah, Archimedes is going to come up. And it's it's really, it's like the exact same owl. I'm sure there's nuanced differences, but I saw that same thing happening with the horse here. And I don't remember exactly what movie. I know El Dorado, I think, had horses that look very similar to this style of horse. Um, I was thinking of uh, but...
0: Tangled. Definitely, I mean, watching this movie now, it, it didn't really occur to me how much like kind of sync there is with uh, Tangled, you know? Uh, I kind of just... love that
1: though. I, I love seeing like the birth of this very specific character, whether it's the owl or the horse, whatever, and then how they just keep getting developed on over and over until they become like almost their own archetype.
0: Chip it's, shows it's up if you're cool paying attention.
1: <laughs> who Who does?
0: Chip. There's a very oh yeah chipmoker yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I mean that's that's kind of a cool way to brand it though. I mean, especially when everything's analog, I don't think that's being lazy so
1: <laughs> So what else there's a couple other notes here. Um, one is that if we noticed in Cinderella the the evil stepmother, she had her hair kind of up in like little horns, but they didn't go all the way in and make her look like ultra evil the same way that they kind of do with Maleficent, but all three of, of Maleficent, um, the evil mother in Cinderella and Chernobog, it's essentially the same character. Chernobog gets established first, you know, the black God, um, which ironically is also one of the, the animators that worked on that particular sequence, uh, worked on a lot of the scenes in this movie. But um, we've got Maleficent as the personification of like, the Disney villain that wasn't Chernobog directly, but represented Chernobog in like a very nice sort of animated way. And that that's going to continue on. Like you're going to see Maleficent sort of takes the place of Chernobog in the Disney sort of pantheon as being the ultimate Satan, I guess. Like if you had to say Mm kind of how we have, you know, we've got Moloch and we've got ball and we've got Satan and Lucifer and Leviathan. And, but depending on, how generalized you look at everything. A lot of people are just like, that's the devil or that's Satan, right? So in my mind, uh, Maleficent is sort of like the Satan, the devil, the Lucifer of the, you know, the Disney pantheon.
0: Well, yeah, again, that's why the uh, Tokyo Disney attraction was making children soil their pants because uh, <laughs> you were—it was like they—they they, in their mind, especially they're literally being sent to hell, you know. <laughs>
1: that would have been a, that would be a pretty awesome like a like a Chernobog Fantasia ride where it's just like the All Hallows Night or the the Witch's Sabbath, and you actually just go through it and fire comes out.
0: Yeah, I don't remember a specific name, but yeah, find a YouTube video on that one because it is—you you can tell from the video—it's pretty like definitely would terrify most people (laughs) um excuse me and and yeah i know my family like we had whenever fantasia came out on vhs is when we got fantasia so again i was probably transposing chernobog onto the end of this movie in my mind for years so i might have been slightly disappointed when i got that dvd because i was like expecting that which the dragon's fine don't get me wrong but (laughs) uh chernobog still does seem to like you said, they replaced him with Maleficent more or less. But I still think I mean, that's the because ultimate,
1: like... I mean, Chernobog is an actual pagan, you know, demon god that people worship. Like that is the <laughs> real name and and sort of um, a great illustration version of him. But I think it was a little bit too on the nose for where Disney saw everything headed. Where you know, I don't know how how profitable and how like cuddly and marketable you can make. literal chernobog versus maleficent you know that's kind of has like a a more pleasing aesthetic to her
0: it's gotta be plush ursulas out there i'd I'd see that before (laughs) a plush maleficent (laughs) all the all the legs would be a little creepy i don't know if i'd want a plush with that many legs but hey some kids like weird stuff so
1: So, and there there's a few uh, visual similarities i
0: caught in this movie
1: from the from movies that came way after and i don't know if any of these were intentional but i just wanted to throw some out because um that i didn't see them in other reviews and kind of like um takes on this movie one of them is that maleficent's castle as soon as i saw it on screen i was like that's castle ducula from count ducula And I had to pause it and I had to Google it. And sure enough, I mean, there's a little bit of variation, but you can almost lay Castle Ducula on top of uh, Maleficent's castle and it's the same thing. So I thought that was really, really cool. Um, And what else? Oh, the uh, her little like soiree of creatures that have little helmets and spikes and some have horns and stuff. Um, the ones that are looking for sleeping beauty, but they're idiots because they're still they're looking for a baby for 16 years and they never find her because, you know, she's like grown up or whatever. They look almost identical to the Jim Henson little creatures in labyrinth, you know, the, the guys that work under um, the labyrinth master. And and I had to pull again a screen up and that one's not as one for one because it's, you know, puppets versus cartoons um but man the 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 archetypes of the characters and just the silhouettes of some almost you know matched up perfectly
0: this i mean this is me mostly saying something silly but actually it might have some of that subconscious uh impact like i said right before we did this podcast i had also done avatar so last night i was watching sleeping beauty and avatar and while drifting off to sleep i had like images of aurora being you know uh chased by like the 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 horse monster things from Pandora, which works fine. (laughs) It's you know it's kind of the same thing in a way, like the minions in this movie and something like you know
1: and those uh the minions in this movie too. Um, they struck me as they visually look like some of the descriptions that Paracelsus made of what he called Paracelsian monsters. And if if you're not familiar with Paracelsus, he's sort of the the great godfather. Of medicine he's the first one that realized the principle of toxicity and um of dilution that something in a high dose can kill you but in a smaller dose can help you he was kind of like one of the first people that was able to articulate that properly throughout the world but he had a lot of weird wacky ideas and one of his weird wacky ideas was that you could create a homunculus and if you allowed a homunculus to develop through maturity and a homunculus is basically like a little version of yourself it's like a mini me that you can create in like a flask or something but if you create a mini me and you let it grow into adulthood it'll turn into what he called these Paracelsian monsters or he, he called the monsters we call them Paracelsian monsters based on his name and some of the descriptions of those monsters are kind of what these little creatures look like so i mean it was almost impossible for me to not tie the like a, almost an alchemical principle in here because again the original story is talking about um giving birth to twins that are the the sun and the moon and sa- having to sacrifice them only to be reborn and the twelve golden plates um and these paracelsian monsters like there is a deep alchemical probably Rosicrucian theme that's kind of persisting throughout this uh this movie.
0: And how do you make a homunculus? No, don't answer it now. It took me a while to <laughs> do <see> that podcast. <laughs> you could go hear that somewhere else if you want. Very interesting, but took took me a few stops and listen to another podcast for a bit, then come that, back to it. <laughs> to be fair, that is a
1: very particular way to make a homunculus. That's not what there's no universal agreement on that particular one, but I would say that 90% of homunculus recipes get X-rated towards the uh, the end of them. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, right on. That's the only way to do it. Um
1: I mean, just like well, making a normal person, it gets x rated at a certain point, does it not? Yeah well yeah, earlier in that case
0: um, <laughs> uh what's next on your note then
1: uh let me see so there's a couple cool just um dynamics of magic which is sort of obvious cuz they're actually using magic wands and casting spells but it's just kind of cool in the movie at least maleficent comes in and she puts this curse on sleeping beauty on aurora and after she leaves one of the other fairies is able to sort of cast like an anti magic spell So she kind of converts that instead of you pricking your finger and dying, it's I'm going to, you're going to prick your finger and go to sleep. And it's the order that actually makes sense here because in the original version of these 12 Zodiacs showing up and then the 13th one being unlucky, Disney reinterprets that one as like the seven and Maleficent comes up, but Maleficent cuts one of the other, um fairies off in line essentially when she does her little spell and it's sort of implying that if she had waited her turn and done it at the end no one would have been able to reverse it no one would have been able to do like a counter magic spell so part of her being like too eager to cast her magic sort of bitter in the ass in the end that was wait line folks on it yeah, wait yeah,
0: in line. <laughs> my my note for that was, I bet she was about to give the gift of bath bombs before Maleficent <laughs> showed up. <laughs> I don't uh, know if What else? Um. Oh, sorry. I just had a thought jump out of my mind. Oh, here we yeah. go. We when we were doing Snow White, um, we definitely had. The idea that she was actually casting spells and she could talk to the animals. So Aurora doesn't seem to quite be that deep in magic herself, but she definitely has that same like nature connection. Maybe just because she lives in the woods, I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, she. So Aurora in this movie is very much passive. But magic happens to her, and it happens around her, and it maybe happens because of just being in proximity to her. But she very much in this. Um, in this particular movie, she herself is not casting the magic, but she stands for magic because, again, she is Ishtar and Easter. Um, and in a lot of the older versions of this tale, they, they actually link her directly to these old fertility goddesses. And it's that concept of, you know, winter comes and nature seemingly comes to a, a dead halt. And you wonder, man, are, is the snow ever gonna go away? And are my crops ever gonna come back, or are we just all gonna starve to death? And then eventually the winter ends and the summer comes again. So it's she is just a retelling of the nature story. Um, but she herself is not causing any of this magic. Again, it's happening to her kind of as nature, and then there's a sort of an interesting nod to this where um the Man, there's so many different ones that, that repurpose the story, but in the 1650s version, the medieval version, there's a nod to this because they mentioned that the prince notices or the fairies tell the prince, don't tell Sleeping Beauty that she's wearing her her grandmother's dress. And this is a, a sort of a nod that when she went to sleep, it was the old pagan gods that ruled the earth. And then a hundred years pass, and now that she's waking up, again, that hundred-year version that you're mentioning, hundred years pass. Now when she wakes up, the world has evolved around her, and the world is now kind of like following Christ. You know, they're following these new monotheistic religions, and they've got rid of the old pagan religions. So her falling asleep and waking back up is also representative of shedding that old fertility goddess pagan. Uh, approach to things and like the more refined, you know, more civilized Christian approach to it.
0: I I guess it's the whole Rip Van Winkle thing that appeals to me. That if I do have something lacking from this movie, it's like I do like that element a lot. So I I wish it was here, and it didn't seem like she just took a five minute nap. But you know,
1: <laughs> I f- I feel like if they did that, the exposition required now. I mean, how much, how you just went from eight years to 10 years because you, you, you of that have, extra five minutes, right? Oh <laughs> yeah.
0: You'd have to be making a different movie from the get go for sure. Uh, but the, uh, the Mandela effect thing, that I keep calling out just in my mind, that is how this movie rolls. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it is weird. Again, I haven't been in the States for 12 years. So whenever I do go back, I'll have my own experience along those lines for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So oh, and there um so Aurora does do one thing. I wouldn't call it a magic incantation, but she says something, and I made a note because it was like that doesn't really sound accurate at all. And I tried to do some research, and I think it was just written in this particular Disney script. But she says, They say if you dream a thing more than once, it's sure to come true. And uh and it was just it sounded so silly that I had to write it down because No part of that or how I can read it. Does it ring true in any context (laughs) that, that if you just dream about a thing more than once, it's sure to come through, come true. I mean, maybe law of attraction, maybe the law of positive thinking. Mm. Um, But she's actually talking about, she fell asleep and had a dream about a Prince on more than one occasion. And because of that, it was guaranteed to happen to her, which is very wishful thinking. Um, So maybe this could be her, putting her intentions out into the universe, right? So maybe that's part of her magic. But it, again, it feels like things are happening to her.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to have last night's dream twice. Uh, again, this is maybe because I watched Sleeping Beauty and Avatar in conjunction with each other. So it's uh, just, to throw out my, it has imagery from both. So it's fun. But I was um, <clears throat> going to see this Buddha on the other side of a pagoda, like a tall pagoda. But to get there, you had to like climb along the roof you know, very precarious. Although I looked down at one point and weird for a dream. I was like, well, if I fell, it's really going to hurt, but I guess I wouldn't die. And I get there's a platform. There's a big like Buddha image. And, and then they roll out a carpet, like medieval looking carpet. Like, okay. You just walk down the stairs to get out of here. I was like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> but that was like, that was like a special service. Usually you have to go out the way you came, like, and then scale the ceiling again. So I don't know. <laughs> I have weird dreams. I don't know, maybe.
1: Not, you have to sign a waiver before you go into that one
0: no not in the dream world uh, probably not in <laughs> japan to be perfectly honest um we've we took my daughter a couple times to the the ninja park up in the mountains and um yeah you got kids like climbing around on these precipices on trees i mean you could kill yourself in eight different ways there without a problem and they just let anyone roll in and do it <laughs>
1: You, you just add the word extreme to the front of it and then do an upsell, right?
0: No, I say ninja. Ninja gets the Everyone there's <laughs> yeah, that. So. Yeah, you don't have to add extreme when you've already said ninja. <laughs> that's
1: the that's the American version. The extreme no, when, ninja park.
0: No, when we first took my daughter there, I posted it for my family and friends on Facebook. And I was like, the world's most dangerous amusement park. <laughs> And it doesn't I have think rides. That, I think
1: there was a place in New Jersey that takes the cake on that. Oh, whole, act, action, that park? Is that action, action Park? Action
0: Park, yeah. I, <laughs> okay. I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, people are careful at Ninjamura, right? So, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, I mean, you don't want to put two little kids up on there, but I think a lot of kids understand if I do this, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah, is the whole thing of doing it Chanto in Japan, doing it the right way, which sometimes can be very annoying, but in cases like theme parks it's fantastic because yeah i mean disney land tokyo disneyland see i mean people walking away they're they're well dressed there's no garbage they they don't have paint chipping there like ever it's crazy all the animatronics are working if they don't if you find something that isn't it will be the next day you know talk to the, there, yeti there was at a, the animal kingdom
1: <laughs> there was a video i had seen recently that made me uh think of that as you were mentioning it and it was You might know the context better than I I do because I'm just going to throw out like the random parts that I remember. But I believe it was a bunch of people in Japan and they were protesting something. It wasn't like a, a particularly antagonistic protest, but they were protesting in the middle of the street. And then as soon as the lights began to turn red, they'd all like calmly get out of the street and let the traffic pass and then as soon as the lights turn red again they'd get back in the street and continue their protest and they it was just like a very ordered clockwork version and like they were being very careful and not inconvenience traffic and not you know commit any sort of like break any laws in the process and it yeah, was just were, surreal because i've never seen anything like that
0: they weren't they weren't protesting traffic protocol um
1: right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> i found sometimes it's
1: such a foreign concept though
0: I've been around long enough, actually. I guess I, I do give a hand these days, but you know, at the end of a party, it's time to clean up and you know, we'll slack around in the States and you know, dishes are still there tomorrow. Where um in Japan sometimes blinking, like, whoa, everything's clean, what happened?
1: <laughs>
0: um, when when we were living in America for a few years, um my my friend was house sitting at a guy's house. He had a bunch of like cool like monster movie punk rock memorabilia, but yeah, my wife was there, and then she felt compelled to just clean the place for two hours. Like, no, you you really don't have to do that. So <laughs> I had a friend living in a punk rock house. I was like, no, I, you cannot come with me to see him, because she would try to clean that, and it wasn't going to happen.
1: <laughs> that happens in the States, too, but it's usually uh, meth involved. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, 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 just what you're talking about with the demonstration doesn't sound surprising to me. Um, you Ten years, eleven years ago, with the, the earthquake and tsunami and uh, Fukushima and all that, like there wasn't any looting or anything. So it was, it was pretty wild, you know. People actually chill out. I mean, there are there are flaws in Japan for sure, but I would say that's not one of them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I, how far down your note list are you? I, I got three other notes, and they're all just kind
1: of like fun ones. So okay, I was also. Those. I was getting really strong uh, Castle Grayskull vibes when we started getting, like, close-up shots of Maleficent's castle. Uh, just, And I took some screenshots again because it looked so close, and I kind of did a, a left and right comparison, especially because they start using, like, a green and purple uh, lighting um, aspects on it. Like, the lighting sources are, like, these fluorescent purple and green lights, And it just reminded me of some old He-Man scenes, and it sure. I I
0: I did make a Castle Grayskull note. Okay, I'm glad. I'm I'm glad. I'm having trouble spotting it at the moment for some reason, but uh, no, I definitely was like expect you could just get He-Man to save you from this problem, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) what else? There was uh, sorry, what were we gonna say?
0: Oh, and when I was five or six years old, my my father bribed me to jump off the diving board by like, okay, if you dive, I'll get you Castle Grayskull. And that's how I got Castle Grayskull. (laughs) And a
1: a broken arm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You only need one arm to play with Grayskull, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, so one of the the ones that stood out the most to me, and I loved this aspect of it, but that final scene where the prince kills Maleficent dragon version, there's blood, man. Like we actually see, you know, an unharmed animal, that gets pierced by a weapon and blood comes out of it and then they die and it doesn't cut away and it doesn't happen off screen. Like you see all of it essentially happen. The only time that it leaves screen is when she converts back from her dragon form into kind of just like a pile of ash or clothes. But I mean, you you see the violence there and, and uh, you know, I can't think of a lot of other Disney movies where they, they kill the villain and you see blood come out in the process.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying to think if there's anything there. Oh, Black Cauldron. I don't know if that has it or not because it's been so long. But that would certainly be a place for it. I mean, there's some movies
1: where people get hurt and they draw blood, but I I can't think of death scenes that involve blood in them just because it's so foreign to a typical Disney formula. I'm sure they're out there. So maybe we need to dig that up.
0: I figured out why I couldn't find my gray skull note. It looks like I forgot to save a large portion of my notes because my last note is, gotta fuel up your menstrual <laughs> with, with alcohol. So I'm like, oh, that's, that's not near the end of the movie. So, oops, I must have... Uh, yeah, I was I was late night viewing last night.
1: <laughs> oh, and, and my, my final note, too, with a little bit of Rosicrucian and alchemical references, but Maleficent... Cast a spell towards the end of the movie too when she casts it over the castle um that, that blocks the prince's way to get in and he has to kind of like hack his way through that spell that she does uh is so shakespearean it, it sounds very much like the the boil and boil toil and trouble you know i have a new wing of a bat kind of mm-hmm. thing um which is interesting because that same cadence and that same sort of word patterning that essentially is hearkening back to not exactly alchemy but like the the first sort of like witch doctors and it's because they would call their things you know the the eye of a newt i think was like a mustard seed and it was just because that was how you used to protect the the kernels you know secret recipe back then is that you just didn't tell people oh yeah it's you know it's barbecue rub with mustard seeds you'd be like oh yeah it's bat wings and newt eyes so you'd have to know what those code words were in order to like replicate it. So that same kind of aspect of obfuscation um, kind of makes its way into the way that Maleficent is casting these spells. I just thought it was an interesting thread.
0: Did you happen to write down her thorn spell?
1: Uh, Not the exact spell, no.
0: Because you said Shakespearean, and I'm, I'm wondering if the cadence you're mentioning is it, like the whole iambic pentameter thing, which would give it that. All, all I'm finding is a um a forest of Thorns thorn she'll be used to uh, I'm finding a YouTube and maybe they print it as well because I'm wondering if that cadence... well, and, I'm,
1: and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the original spell it's after um it's towards the end of the movie as the prince uh, makes his way out of captivity and he's heading towards Sleeping Beauty she casts a spell over Sleeping Beauty's castle that she's in oh sorry if that's making that noise
0: it started to play the actual movie. Yeah, this is what I'm looking at, and I'm wondering if you were here. Okay, here we go. A forest of thorns shall be his tomb, born through the skies in a fog of doom. I'll go with a curse and serve me well Round Stefan's castle, cast myself. So I think it is in that iambic pentameter, which might, you know, you know, spell saying things. That's how it works, right? So um, it seems not just Shakespearean, but the actual cadence, Um do you know the other very famous writer who also almost always wrote niambic pentameter?
1: I wasn't prepared for this trivia. No, what who is that?
0: Dr. Seuss, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. S- Seuss, and Shakespeare used the same pattern,
1: uh, so he's casting spells,
0: <laughs> yeah. In a way, that's yeah, chewy chew for gooey, chewy chew for chewy chewing. That's what this goo goose is doing. If you choose, or <laughs> choose, or do, sir, it's the same rhythm that he uses, so. Yeah, I I have to do fox and socks a lot because I teach English.
1: <laughs> I think there's a thread. There's actually a thread here, man. There's a thread worth pulling on.
0: No, but I mean that's an important thing. The, the cadence of spells. That's why the words. Why you use certain words. Why it might sound weird because it must follow this pattern. So yeah, I, I, that's my point. I think that is to something a little bit um, baked in. But maybe that you know magical language requires you to use certain cadences, right? So maybe if you use a different kind of spell you use a different cadence
1: well we're gonna have to try and, and conjure something up on one of these live
0: yeah yeah for sure <laughs> um yeah and, and we get then other things. what dune has like the voice so that sort of thing but uh, the value of vibration right everything's vibration so i i, I think that actually is a, a obviously we were researching sleeping beauty and not that so I'm i'm walking us into a dead end at the moment but it's a you know Maybe there's a door at the dead end at some point. But I like
1: that because I'm, I'm going to keep an, an ear open for more of those iambic pentameter sort of examples, especially when it comes to people doing the the spells and reciting them.
0: And I think it basically comes down to big, small, 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 big, small and everything's rhyming couplets. So you, they always have to rhyme and you don't rhyme the next part. So you you don't change the rhyming scheme which is also i think an important thing of it and, but...
1: and i wonder too if is shakespeare the one that linked that cadence to it being magical through that famous line or did that pre-exist uh and when i say shakespeare i obviously mean francis bacon because shakespeare <laughs> was not a real person
0: <laughs> i actually I, I i was about to bring up francis bacon anyway i, I was about to say i don't mind if shakespeare can be a... Real person, but uh, I definitely like the idea that the 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 magic man was actually writing all this stuff, <laughs> or didn't... or like
1: a a a group of people that were kind of it was almost like a I almost like it. It's like a Jack the Ripper, you know. He, he wasn't killing people, but it was like a group of these nobles that were doing shocking things and putting it out under someone else's name.
0: I'm always a fan of the Crowley was Jack the Ripper theory, but But that's just because, you know, let's 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 throw. He would have been on the tail end,
1: though. He'd be on the tail end of of the Jack the Rippers because it would have started before he was born. No,
0: Uh, you might be right. I it's been a while. I didn't watch from hell. So
1: (laughs) you got to read the the comic anyways. Wait, Wait, it's a million times better than the movie.
0: Actually, I think I did read the comic, but a really long time ago. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's it's not a quick or easy read, but it's a very good read.
0: Yeah, it would have been about the same time I read Mouse. Same thing. <laughs> not a quick or easy read. Yeah, not.
1: It's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like if someone's like, "Hey, I'm gonna go read a, a comic book this weekend." You're not thinking Mouse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, if that's the uh, the end of your list, I, I guess we'll start wrapping things up for today. But uh, did you have any final things you wanted to throw out for? for sleeping beauty.
1: Uh not really. I I had this book that I just haven't been able to get all the way through yet, but it's it's been oh of course it's not going to show up, but it's called um The Initiatory Paths in Fairy Tales, Alchemical Secrets of Mother Goose. And uh it doesn't necessarily do a uh, fairy tale by fairy tale, but it explains these common archetypes that, that are going over and great examples are Cinderella sleeping beauty, snow white, because they follow the same kind of path and they hearken on something that I've mentioned in a few of our previous ones that also shows up in this one a little bit. And that's the rabbit uh, symbolism and the underworld and the re- the recycling, because in Alice in Wonderland, it's, you know, follow the white rabbit and that represents Persephone and it re- represents Easter. And in this movie, There is a scene where the owl comes down and it pulls these two rabbits out of a log. So it stood out to me as that rabbit being linked to Ishtar and Easter. And they were kind of like two twin rabbits. So I always wonder if that was a nod to the original DNA of the Sleeping Beauty story where she has the two twins and those twins represent this nature cycle. Because again, in, in, in the old secret mystery cults, the rabbits represented that and they represented um you know ishtar and easter and that's where you get the easter bunny uh it was because of this link between the fertility gods uh and goddess and the rabbits
0: just just with owls my workplace i just got throughout has a bunch of owls in it the orig- the main school tons of owls the, the old boss really liked owls or or maybe she was part of a secret society no i think she just really liked owls but (laughs) then we just opened a new one and even then not so many owls but there's still one big owl painting on the wall so whenever i see that of course it's a guy that likes to think about this sort of thing i'm like there's an owl again (laughs) they get a bad rap a lot of people see an owl especially
1: conspiratorially minded and it's like oh bohemian grove illuminati get you know guaranteed um, but man, I I really do, especially in these Disney movies. I try my best to find the owl symbolism. Um, what in Snow White, there's a scene when they're inside of the little shack that she's staying in with the Seven Dwarves, and there's just the faintest outline of owls carved into the staircase and there's just countless conspiracy blogs out there. that's like Illuminati confirmed. There's (laughs) owls in the staircase. And I I mean, I I watched that scene over and over and I counted them and I looked for other symbols around them. And really as much as I want to look into it, it it just seemed like a cool design with owls in it. And so far... (laughs) Yeah, it seems foresty. It's a cool animal. They represent cool things. It's got a, a cool aesthetic to it. So even in this movie with the owl, I mean... I'm, I'm hurting myself trying to bend in ways to be like oh that's a bohemian grove reference it, it just doesn't happen yet it will in some of the movies coming up but at this point it doesn't happen although we, you mentioned earlier mk ultra and i want to note that this movie in particular sleeping beauty is kind of at peak mk ultra time you know like early 50s through late 50s so a lot of the the conspiracy references where you know Disney and MK Ultra were hand in hand. Around this time it's harder to disprove those outright, you know, that like MK Ultra didn't exist yet. So at this point they do. And there's a bluebird in this movie and there's all sorts of other sort of mind control references. So
0: well yeah I mean that's the thing and it doesn't have to be like there's a you know someone you know, snidely snivelly in the hanging out ha- animation putting the thing on purpose. It's kind of like, hey, we got a note. Could you do this? Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put a bluebird in, please. Okay, I can do that. Uh, one of <clears throat> one of the most interesting scenes I think ever in any movie, um, is the scene of Mahal Drive where they switch out the idol singer. <laughs> have Have you seen Mahal Drive? In the '90s, I saw okay. it
1: and I, I remember being so confused by the ending.
0: <laughs> anyway, there, there's a scene where it has like the starlet, you know, duh, 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 like trying someone basically normal trying to sing, and then someone mm-hmm. comes in and says she's not the one, get rid of her, and then they bring in like this blonde like. You know, like the presidential model sort of lady, and, and she just starts instantly starts bopping, and you know, I saw in the '90s, I was like, "Oh, that's weird. What what does that even mean?" And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, okay, I think I got that." So <laughs> that that's actually definitely one David Lynch movies. I, I think are. I, I think David, yeah, it might just be subconscious stuff, too, but i I think there's something to look into in a lot of David Lynch's movies for symbology, things like that. But that scene in particular is like that's how Hollywood works, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I'd love to go back through David Lynch's catalog again. I think I, I watched Twin Peaks a few years ago from beginning to end. And it's interesting, although it doesn't it doesn't hold up the same way that i I was hoping it would. Uh, and that's probably like, might be sacrilegious to even say out loud, so I apologize. No, no, people people Parker keep saying Lynch me fans.
0: people, people <laughs> keep saying to me, "You got to watch the new Twin Peaks." Is like it's really good. You'd love him. Like, but I'd have to watch the old one again first, and then I'd have to watch a new one. I don't, I don't have time for that. I'll, I'll go watch. You Lost know what, man,
1: <laughs> The old one, I, I, I love so much the things that they started to hint at, like the little secret society that they had, like the Col- oh yeah, it was called
0: the the Black and Lodge.
1: Like, man, yeah, the Black. I mean. I, Every every time I would watch an episode, I was like, tell me more. I want to learn more about this. And they just never delivered on it. And it still pains me to this day. Like, I still have a little bit of contempt for not delivering on all these like really cool promises that were made. No, and um, I but- when I want
0: to go for Twin Peaks, I'll go directly for Firewalk with me, which doesn't even match the tone of the show. Um <laughs> Has the famous scene of David Bowie walking into an office and just screaming. That's like ah! Not saying anything, just screaming. It's great. <laughs> so very disturbing movie. Because uh, the show's not like disturbing in that way, but the movie is Ooh! Yeah. <laughs> Leaves a weird taste in your mouth. Not a nice wholesome one like a movie like Sleeping Beauty. Just <laughs> Sorry, trying to make the segues work there.
1: We're, we're definitely not talking about the the original versions where the king comes in and just does what he needs to
0: yeah we just mentioned those a little bit yeah that that's that's creepy i mean even in my notes i I didn't know that because i was writing things like um oh he's been waiting 16 years to roofie his royal friend that's the king and the the two kings but uh then oh that didn't happen oh yeah yeah i i wrote a few notes along those lines not knowing about those versions of the story so (laughs) now i'm like oh my notes don't sound good anymore (laughs) um this is saturday i guess or sunday i think i'm doing these on sunday now but hey what's going on on your weekend that that's that's what you can plug right here right now <laughs> oh uh actually that's a great question because
1: this week i just published a new coloring book called the modern american lovecraft adult coloring book on amazon and i believe that's also available in japan and it's 30 pages of Just really cool, Lovecraftian inspired coloring book pages.
0: Oh, you might have just told me a Christmas present I'm buying for someone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, please, man, that there's I've got four out now total. So I've got the Lovecraft coloring book, I've got American Cryptids coloring book, I've got one called The Cult of the All Seeing Eye, which has just got a bunch of cool, sort of like pyramids and aliens and reptilian designs. And then I've got one called Paranoid Portraits. And if you're at all a fan of occult and conspiracy theory stuff, it's just I think it's like 25 different portraits of people like Alistair Crowley. We've got Baphomet in there. We've got Manly Palmer Hall. We've got Aldous Huxley. Uh, just just cool stuff to, you know, stocking stuffers that no one's going to expect uh, and they won't see coming.
0: <laughs> the stocking stuffer you won't see coming.
1: And you can uh, and find all those on ParanoidAmerican.com as well as on Amazon.
0: All right. As, as for it, this podcast we we do podcastio podcastius on patreon which is even if you don't want to throw a dollar in to keep the lights on it's a good hub for all the the stuff we do out here in japan which uh matt luke sci-fi sanctuary with sci-fi movies time enough podcast where we talk about the twilight zone and for the gamers there's luke loves pokemon monster mash which is about monster hunter and the game game show which is four british guys screaming insults at each other so there's all of (laughs) i don't know if i remember i I don't know if i always mention all those at the end of these shows or not but i did today (laughs) okay i'm I'm, I'm gonna go i'm gonna go sleep for a hundred years i guess that's not true. i'm gonna take a shower and go to work but
1: (laughs) make sure you lock your
0: doors (laughs) in japan i don't have to do that (laughs) (laughs)